Hello, this is episode 52 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. I spoke with poet, painter, and publisher Richard Sykin back in February of 2018 at the office of Spork Press in Tucson, Arizona. Richard Sykin is the recipient of a Lambda Literary Award and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, among other honors. He's the author of two fabulous books of poems, Crush and War of the Foxes. This was a wild episode to record. Richard gave me a tour of Spork, and then we set up to talk. I've spoken with some publisher poets before, Matthew Zapruder, Julie Carr, Carmen Jimenez-Smith, but this episode provided a fascinating glimpse into the world of a press in the early stage of moving from publishing literary journals to books. Holding the interview in that space felt like seeing behind the curtain. Spork shares space with a t-shirt company, and during the course of our conversation, the silkscreen machine became distracting. So Richard and I took all our stuff on a long table along with two desk chairs out to the backyard and continued to record. You'll hear a few strange cuts, several low-flying planes, and barking dogs. Richard Sykin is the poet most often requested by Commonplace listeners, and it was an honor to speak with him. His process of writing and publishing are so different from mine. His work so compressed and powerful and elusive. Rather late in the episode, I ask him about being a social worker, having done my homework and read past interviews, only to find out he's not and has never been a social worker. This interaction made me realize how much more comfortable I've become, even in awkward moments, and how deeply I appreciate the opportunity to have these concentrated, intimate, unscripted conversations with some of the most important living American poets. We've got some really exciting things in the works at Commonplace, but we need your help. If you're not already a patron and want to become one, please visit patreon.com slash commonplacepod or go to our website, commonpodcast.com, where you can become a patron and where you can find links to the people and texts that Richard and I mention in this episode. Patrons will get access to audio files of Richard reading more poems. Patrons will be entered into a raffle that contains Richard's books, Crush, courtesy of Yale University Press, and War of the Foxes, courtesy of Copper Canyon Press, as well as Lunch Poems 2 by Paul Legault and The Listening Room by Kathleen Rooney, courtesy of Spork Press. Thank you, Yale University Press, Copper Canyon, and Spork Press. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. And thank you to our listeners. I want to send a special shout out to all our listeners who've emailed me lately with thanks and appreciation for Commonplace. I know I don't always respond quickly, and I still owe some of you an email, but I love getting this news. Bianca Boer, a patron from the Netherlands, recently won the Poetry Prize of the City of Ostend and mentioned in a Dutch interview that Commonplace helped her write differently. Will Walton thanks Commonplace in the back of his just recently published second YA novel, I Felt a Funeral in My Brain. Gordon emailed me, I live in a literary desert and rely on your podcast as one of very few tethers to the contemporary poetic world. 
in my darkest hours of self-doubt as a poet, my solitary celebrations of publication acceptance letters, and every moment in between, feeling like I'm part of the conversation, even passively, sustains me. Laura, I commute to my job. I'm on the road about nine hours a week, and the conversations on Commonplace have transformed this experience. I love that they are longer than a typical interview podcast, completely engrossing. Kristen, I would find it hard to exaggerate how much listening to your conversations on Commonplace has meant to me. It has literally, in so many respects, saved me, has enabled me to keep going. Thank you to all of you, to Sam, Jacob, Claire, Katie, Aaron, to all of you who email us, tweet at us, and recommend Commonplace to your friends and students. And now, here's Richard Sykin. Hi. Hi. It's really nice to see you. So I think that we only met once and you wouldn't remember me. I was at your book party uh, in New York. Sure. Yeah. But I don't think we've met any other time, have we? I don't think we have. Okay. I'm relieved because if we had, it meant I didn't remember. <laughs> so it's very nice to meet you for real. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. Okay. So we're in Tucson and we are in this like magical, amazing space. And you just gave me a little tour. Um, tell me now so everybody else can hear what what is this space? Who's here? What does it do? And then we're going to talk about the nitty-gritty okay okay well we wanted to be part of the community mm. and we needed more space we were working out of drew's one car garage and that wasn't tenable we decided we would ramp up production make full-length books um, and we would need interns and workers and space for machines and materials mm -hmm. they were widening broadway and because they were widening Broadway, they had some condemned buildings that they were willing to lease for next to nothing on short-term leases. And we thought that would be a great practice space for us. So we got a, a storefront just down the street and learned how to work at this scale. Mm -hmm. Loved it, but they're widening Broadway and they weren't willing to give us another two-year lease, so we needed to move. And Drew is Drew Burke. Drew Burke. Um, who is an artist and makes the, um, we're talking about Spork Press, and, okay, keep going. He's the, he's the book binder yeah. and webmaster and designer uh, and uh, fiction editor. How did the two of you meet? Oh, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. All right, that, that falls under the nitty-gritty? Sure. Okay. Go for it. Um, we weren't the only people who were looking for space. And we found others who were driving up and down Broadway um, or stopping in the other shops up and down Broadway saying, did you get a lease? Who'd you get your lease from? Are you leasing from the city? Where are you going? Uh, and we decided to pitch in um, with two other entities and get a larger space and share it and see if we couldn't make a go of it. So this is our second storefront. Mm. And we've really only been in since the, the end of summer. And still, things are sorting out. 
Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And um, do people come in directly here and buy the books or buy the t-shirts or like when you say storefront, uh, is this where things only get made or where there's interaction with the public? It's a design shop right now. It's, uh-huh. it's a factory uh-huh. or a studio. Um, we don't have business hours yet. Okay. Um, we're still trying to figure that out. And we haven't plugged in the cash register. We're still trying to figure that out. Got it. Um, Spork is about to have 12 new full-length titles. Mm. And we haven't had a new title in a while, and our last titles were chapbooks. So we're spending our energy right now into finishing those projects, but we don't have anything to sell today. Uh So if we had business hours, um, we could tell them our dreams. But that's about it, and we want to have product before we commit to being here. Um, nine to five for whatever hours we, we might have. So, and part of why you don't have anything to sell is because you started with um, a journal uh, and then chapbooks and you printed about 200. This is from before. Uh, that This is my information from five minutes ago. Uh, and then you sold them all. So now the, the 12 new titles that are coming up, um, do you know what your print run roughly will be on those? Yeah, we have a really interesting model. We are for profit Mm -hmm. um, because we believe that art has worth and that um, and it can be self-sustaining. So we don't take any grant money and we don't have any funders or donors. We also make the books by hand. And so our cost structure is different because we need people to make the covers and run them through the press. Whereas others who want to put out a book send an InDesign file to an email address and then later books show up in boxes. Right. So with our new titles, we can make 200 to start so that we have promo copies and pre-sale copies and author copies. And then keep making batches of 10, 20, or 100 according to sales. Mm -hmm. Since we make them by hand, we don't have to sign a contract with a publishing uh, house and say, can you make 2,000? And then worry about selling 2,000. Mm-hmm. So we can make 200 and sell 200 and be done, or we can make 200 every month and sell those and keep going. And that allows us a lot of flexibility when it comes to um, supporting authors, because we can absolutely throw our support behind someone knowing that they'll only sell 500 copies, but mm-hmm. that it's important to have that work, even if it's in 500 copies. Who are some of the uh, upcoming titles? For spring. Yes. And I know spring is approaching very quickly. Um, but for April, and, and we're pretty sure we'll hit the mark, um, we have uh, three poetry and three fiction um, full lengths. We have Paula Galt, a poet, coming out with a book called Lunch Poems 2. Dorothy Chan is coming out with Attack of the 50-Foot Centerfold. Um, Dalton Day is coming out with a book of poems called Spooky Action at a Distance. 
Kathleen Rooney has a novel in verse. It's kind of a, a novel in prose poem chapters called The Listing Room. Abraham Smith and Scott McWaters worked together to produce an alternating fiction called Tuscaloosa Kills. And we also have Gary J. Shipley, who is a horror author. Wow. Who has uh, 30 short stories called 30 Fake Beheadings, where he imagines 30 horror sequels to movies and tells those tales. Um, okay. And right now, who's making the books? Is it just the two of you? Spork has been as large as uh, 12 people uh-huh. and as small as uh, me and Drew. And right now it's me and Drew. Um, we had some assistant editors that went on to other projects. Uh-huh. We had interns over the summer. Um, we had a longtime contributor, um, editor, and designer who moved to New York recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a good thing we're a collective, and it's a good thing we watch each other work because the titles and workloads change. I'm doing book covers. I never did book covers before, wow. which is really exciting and a learning curve that's making us a little bit late. Okay. Right now we're two weeks late. That's mm-hmm. not that bad. Um, but, you know, we're two weeks late. Okay. So once the books are made, um, people will be able to buy them from you online or? Yeah. And we're going through um, SPD, small okay. press distribution, as well as Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, so availability will not be a problem. So, um, why are you doing this? What's in it for you? What do you get out of it? Um, what's your profit? I'm assuming right now it's not actual money. Um, but I don't know. This worries me every now and then when I think about it. Um, we've been running in the red for 17 years. Mm-hmm. We haven't been losing a lot, um, but we haven't been paying rent. Uh huh. Um, and have you been paying uh, you yourselves? No, rent? no. And have you been able to pl- to pay other employees? No, we've never paid an employee. Yeah. Um, we've never paid ourselves. Uh huh. We've gotten to the point where we can make back. Um, enough to buy more materials yep. and make back enough to pay rent here and there or get us to AWP one year, but maybe not the next year. Uh, but we're not a sustainable model yet. Mm-hmm. We figure we can get there um, when we have greater sales and a larger um, backlist. But what do I get out of it? I did several interviews a couple of years ago when my second book came out. And my second book was concerned with how do we make meaning and why do we make art? And there was a thing that I kept saying in the interviews that kept getting misunderstood. Um, and it was about art therapy. Do I believe in art therapy? And do I believe that art therapy works? Well, I believe in it, and I believe it works. But the reason it works is really devastating. 
The reason it works is because we have taken art out of the human experience, which has made everyone ill. Mm. And now we've decided only in this context, in this way, with this professional that will guide you, could you possibly approach art and start to get better? So I have nothing against art therapy, except it should be a given and, and a way of life. So I do this because there's work I think is important that's not getting published without me. And when it does get published, it gets published in a publishing model that makes gatekeepers and makes people feel helpless. Drew and I wanted to publish books, so we did. We don't have funding. Yeah, we don't make money, but we don't lose much money either. For anyone who's saying their voice isn't being heard, you have all the tools available if you want to put in the time. I mean, we can only have an online presence because, you know, there are websites and blogs. We can have a podcast because, uh, and we can show video because my phone can do it. Because we're handmade, there were some things that we had to consider about um, how to impose a manuscript so that the pages are right when you fold it. Um, but making it by hand is an attempt to show other people, you can make this by hand. You don't have to talk to a person that has the machinery. Um, we have machines now, and we really appreciate them. Um, but you can do it without machines. You can do it with a photocopier. Mm -hmm. The fact that we exist is a type of advocacy. As, as a publishing model and as people who are devoted to share the songs and stories of other people. What do I get? This is my advocacy. Yeah. I'm sitting here. No one can see me. I'm smiling this like idiot like smile and nodding and nodding. I really enjoyed uh, reading some of these interviews with you. I really appreciated the way that you would push back against um, the interviewer who was misunderstanding you um, or asking the wrong kinds of questions. I'm like glad you brought that up. The other thing is I feel like um, you really just so beautifully uh, described why I do this podcast. Um, and it really has to do so much with um, a form of advocacy, um, uh, opening, you know, recognizing um, for me that the that the podcast is a very unmediated uh, platform and is is very. I mean, when I when I decided to start it, I had no idea what I was doing or how I was doing it. And same thing, like I was like, okay, so this is my equipment. I started with my phone. That's it. The first interview I did with David Trinidad was just on my phone. And then I had listeners who, who very nicely emailed me and was like, would you like to improve your sound? Because it's terrible. Um, and I was like, sure. Um, but it's not hard to do it. Um, and I and uh, I thought initially, like, well, maybe I should try to contact a university or the Poetry Foundation or something and, like, 
have a institutional partner and I I I knew I did not want that but I needed a friend to say like you definitely do not want that um, and, and that's been really interesting too to think about how much of it is really about um, undermining and, and subverting this idea that art only happens in certain places, that criticism only happens in certain places, that criticism is, is a very particular kind of response. Like, I don't consider these interviews. I consider these conversations. And I ask myself all the time, like, what am, why am I doing this? You know, I don't get paid. Um, and it's a lot of work. And it, it but it, it really is, I mean, I can't, I mean, get just even getting to, I guess if I'd emailed you and I'd said, hey, I'd love to meet you, maybe you would have said, okay, there's something about the podcast, certainly something about um, having a press, which enables a kind of access, a kind of um, like intentional attention, uh, a shared experience and putting out someone else's work into the world. Like there's all these things I'm so excited to share about your work, about your press, about my reaction to your work uh, and thinking that through that I wouldn't get alone. I think intent is spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. I probably would not have met you. Yeah. If you didn't have a podcast, but having a podcast means that you are seriously interested in discourse and that you are going to take this seriously. Yeah. Um, it's true. There's a business end um, to having a book and you have to do interviews. Um, and I'm getting better at understanding when the person who's doing the interview is the person who was doing obits <laughs> the day before. <laughs> and they've got five interview questions and they're the same for every interview, regardless of um, what the person is doing. Yeah. Um, and so I'm getting better at trying to say something interesting in those open-ended questions. Um, someone asked about my first great experience with poetry and yeah that's a great question but why assume it was a great experience and I had to explain that my first experience was when my half-brother told me my parents were getting divorced and I started getting upset and to try and calm me down he read me McCavity from Cats and he started screaming at me because I was screaming and that was my first introduction to poetry. I don't mean to be subversive. I just think that the act of, of wanting to share something, the fact that that seems subversive is really strange to me. Yeah. The fact that I could have a bad experience with poetry and that surprises people. Um, when, when my first book, Crush, came out, someone said and why such a dark view on life and i said <laughs> where do you live i don't understand yeah <laughs> yeah i love I, I love the record of these interviews um and 
you know, please feel free to push back if I, you know, ask you something stupid. So the two things I want to bring up um, as themes that I've seen in those interviews, because you have gotten a lot of questions about Crush in particular uh, that I get about my work. Uh, Is it true? And is it about you? And, you know, I love the way that you are pushing again, back against those. And I'm, I'm particularly uh, fascinated by the way in which, in, its, in some ways, your response to those questions and to the response to Crush is what is part of the thinking and making and elaboration of your second book. I've fought, and maybe wrongly, um, to have less assumed distance between the speaker and the, and the poet. And I haven't really minded the thing that's the question I get asked most often about my poetry is what does your husband think of this, which is a version of is it true and is it about you, although it assumes it's true, it assumes it's about me. And um, for a lot of reasons, I think that I've spent several years basically saying, yeah, it's it's not only about me it's you know i'm the speaker and it's true and thinking through those things um you know like why is that important to me to to kind of inhabit that position for a while certainly i don't think those are good questions to ask about everybody's work i don't think definitely do not think those are good assumptions to make um but i'm interested in the way that 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 question propels each of us differently when I reread crush and then I read war of the foxes particularly thinking through some of this uh this question about a parent autobiography um and the relationship between the speaker and the poet I I don't know if it's just because I really needed it right now, but War of the Foxes is opening a door for me that is very profound and necessary. And I'm trying to articulate why that's happening for me. And it has something to do with the space that I have to have my own experience while reading those poems. And I think that's something that comes in part from your decision to let there not be a single speaker, to let more things speak, to pull back, to really um, resist um, the ways in which um, people might read the book uh, as a single speaker, as true, as about you, and that there's something I wouldn't have expected. If I had just thought like, which of these two books am I gonna like more? And it's stupid to say more, like which one do I need more right now? I probably would have picked from my description crush and that's not my experience right now. And so I'm really rethinking a lot of these things that, um, that I have recently kind of fought for. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you have thoughts about that or how you're feeling now uh, about both books or about um, this question of truth, autobiography, um, singular voice, multiple voices, and in a way, the reader response. 
it will make more sense at the end of the project. There are five books, mm -hmm. and each one has its own restrictions. Um, I got this from Dennis Cooper's uh, George Miles cycle, where he has five novels. Crush is narrative-driven, mm -hmm. and it has a backgrounded film metaphor, and it's about now and then. War of the Foxes has a rhetorical propulsion, a backgrounded painting metaphor, and it's about here and there. What I'm working on now has a backgrounded music metaphor, is driven by the meditative gesture, associative leap, and has the concern of up and down. War of the Foxes was actually going to be called Render, um, as in to, to render fat or to render an image. Mm -hmm. And the third book was going to be called Hover. And they were all the single title of noun verbs. It was crush, render, hover, and then the rest. Do you know what four and five are going to... I know what their restrictions are. Yeah, tell, can we uh, tell? Them? No, no secret. No. Yeah, okay. Don't need to. Yeah, but and there I... there are many other there are many other um, restrictions as well. Um, the books have to have one, two, three, four, or five parts. They need to have one, two, three, four, or five words in the title. They each need to have their own form. Um, Crush relied heavily on indentation. Um, because the left margin is gravity and the right margin is divinity. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to have some sort of success in the muscularity of the line where the eye didn't have to come all the way back to baseline. And so with the indent, sometimes the line hovers in a breathlessness before having to come back and hit uh, left margin mm -hmm. um, where the foxes is uh, left justified uh, crush is in the second person foxes in is in first and third I, there are some real restrictions on this um, in a way so that I don't repeat myself because I think I realize I have some significant obsessions and significant concerns, and I could be stuck writing the same poem or the same book um, for the rest of my life. Mm. So if I put these restrictions up, even if it's the same obsessions, I've forced the angle of approach and I've forced the frame enough that it won't be the same poem. When did you uh, come into awareness of this plan of the five books and their individual restrictions? 1991. What happened to you? What, did this come to you in a dream? No, Dennis no. Cooper explained uh -huh. it to me in an interview. Okay. And you thought, I'm going to do this. I thought, I'm going to do this. Yeah. 
And and why five? Was it for the five senses? He did five. Okay. I read Amazing. I read two books of his and I thought um, this is this author is a model for me in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the risk of the work, the beauty of the image, the deep thinking behind uh, the subject matter. Mm. And I thought, um, really, there's no way I'm going to be like him so I can model myself as much as possible on him. And then, you know, nearly died when I got Dennis Cooper to blurb crush. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, and are you working on the third one now? Or are you working on three, four, and five at the same time? Working on the third one now. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Every now and then I'll have a notion that might adjust a restriction for four and I'll write that down with an asterisk but I don't have any work for four or five whereas I have most of the work for three um would you do you want to read anything oh god no okay can I ask about your um tell me why you won't you don't want to share the the future or the potential future in terms of the restrictions or work that's not fully ready? Because some people love doing that and some people hate doing that. Is it a superstitious feeling? Is it um, like if you are if you let someone in to see your, your unfinished painting, it will somehow fall apart? Talking about it or doing it, those are satisfying things. Mm. And if I talk about it, it's as satisfying as doing it. So if I talk about it, I'm less likely to do it because I already felt like I did it. Yeah. I taught this um, very weird class, uh, I guess, two falls ago. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of reasons for why I did this. And it was not a, this part of it was not a success, uh, which was that I did not allow my students to introduce themselves to each other. Um, and uh, this usually the introductions are like a really important part um, of the of the class. But I had them not introduce themselves, and I said, if there's if there's something you want us to know about you, then put it in your work, um, in whatever way that means to you. You know, wh- how are you trying to communicate yourself or or anything about you? Just put it in your poem. And uh, I will say it resulted in these extraordinary poems, but a terrible classroom dynamic, which was really interesting. But it put it put a lot of pressure um, on the students. And I think that that's really interesting to me, the idea that talking about it um, can diffuse some of that pressure that might be important to your creative process. In reading The Slush for uh, Sporklet, our little online component, I notice there's a habit now of doing something with the line breaks uh, that's decoration Mm. as distraction for what could be done by a line break or variation in sentence or change in tone. When I taught, I asked all of my students to submit all of their poems in the same font, in the same font uh, size, with the same margins, 
and use an assumed name. I gave them uh, secret agent names. Wow. Um, we did that halfway through. And the dynamic of criticism really changed because you people were using font to let people know who they were. And without that, it became really clear who had a vocabulary set and who didn't, uh, who was using color words and who wasn't. Um, the distraction was gone. I know what I want to talk about. But I would love to know if you have something you want to talk about. Either because nobody ever asks you or because just today you have something you want to talk about. I don't really have much to say ever, strangely. Hmm. I've got 120 published pages so far. And that doesn't seem like a lot mm -hmm. for a body of work. Um, but that's all I had to say that wouldn't waste your time. I'm writing essays now because I'm trying to lean into the space where I can say things about art and art therapy and expression and advocacy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've found a way to make it as large as I want. I think poetry is the language of the imagination, but I think that's because it has figurative language. I think fiction's also the language of the imagination. And I'd like to get to a place where I could say something as large as all art is the language of the imagination and a necessary component of making meaning. Um, but other than that grand statement, I don't, I haven't been able to find an angle in. Mm -hmm. And so if poetry and to, to some extent fiction are the language of imagination, what is the language of the essay and, and um, what are the, what, what does it enable you to do that poems are, are not um, there for in the same way? I'm really interested in strategies and the essay is the Socratic method. Mm. We also have the scientific method, which is really useful, but others are doing that better than, than I could. Um, and then we have the artistic method, which is associative. Um, it's been a strange couple of years to watch the national discourse change so incredibly and the use of rhetoric change so incredibly. Um, there are some things more important than poetry in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, Gertrude Stein loved the way she wrote. And then World War II broke out and her response to that was she went to the front and was a nurse. And after the war, she went back to writing the way she wanted to write. And in that way, her poetry was not contaminated by the war or derailed by the war. It was a, a separate project. 
And when it came time to have a war, she was a nurse, mm. which is a, it's a different act than being a poet. Um, I don't think that we honor rhetoric or discourse in, in, in the ways that we traditionally have. And I think traditionally we've gained more than lost when we had polite invested conversation about subjects. Um, I went to poetry assuming that there would be rational thought. I went to poetry so I could push against that. <laughs> and it's been hard writing poetry lately, depending on rational thought in the reader that might not really be there in this cultural moment. Mm. I know I wrote some things in War the Foxes that I thought were really beautiful and, and hilarious um, that now read in a, in a very different way. Mm. There's a poem in War the Foxes called Logic. And in it, I think the line is, Logic is boring because it works. Yeah. Being unreasonable is exciting. And now I can see that as something our president would say. And that's not at all how I meant it. I don't want our president to say being unreasonable is exciting. I don't want our president to say uh, logic is boring. Because our president should be engaged in the discourse of getting things done. Right. Um, if a president was a poet, I would have different um, concerns. Do you have any interest in reading this poem, even though you have just disavowed it in slight, slightly? It's not that I disavow it. It's yeah. that it can be read in a completely different context now. I'm sorry about my underlinings. It's it's. I feel like when you give someone the book that you of theirs that you have read and underlined and marked, it's like letting them see your underwear or something. It's very intimate. I'm, I I hope you don't do don't feel offended, but I, don't I love this poem I, I, very much. You can see it has some stars on it, and it it, it needs more stars. I think there there other ones have have also many stars. There are many stars that are happening in here. <laughs> Logic. A clock is a machine. A gear is a tool. There is rarely any joy in a frictionless place, so find your inner viscosity. The mind says viscosity is resistance to flow. The body puts glue on a twig and catches a bird. Glue is a tool. Unless you are a bird. If you are a bird, then glue is an inconvenience. A tool does work. A bird flies away from danger and lands where it can. All thinking is comparison. A bear is a weapon. A bear claw is a pastry. A bear trap, if you are a bear, is an inconvenience. Logic is boring because it works. Being unreasonable is exciting. Machines have knobs you can turn if you want to. 
A hammer is a hammer when it hits the nail. A hammer is not a hammer when it is sleeping. I woke up tired of being the hammer. There's a dream in the space between the hammer and the nail. The dream of about to be hit, which is a bad dream. But the nail will take the hit if it gets to sleep inside the wood forever. I taped a sword to my hand when I was younger. This is an argument about goals. I love this poem very, very much. I don't want to explain to anyone why um, it both made me laugh several times and also why I had the feeling of welling up into tears um, at the line, I woke up tired of being the hammer. For a poem that's so small, it had a very wide emotional range um, for me. And I really appreciated that. And I, and I felt like um, there's something you're talking about, or at least there's something I'm thinking about when I'm reading this poem about what is the nature of things and what is my nature and what are my tools and what tool am I and what am I acting upon? What is acting upon me? How does the language create that, mediate that, report that, or have nothing to do at all with that? What is outside of the language? Or is there anything outside of the language? And for me, the poems in this book, and I'm sure it has, has more to do with where I am and what I'm thinking about than anything else, but they, they feel very much about um, the relationships between um, the animate and inanimate world, but also between people. And to think about, wait for this plane to go by. To think about how, again, how I act and am acted upon. And I'm reading this book, you know, after the election of Trump. Um, so I, for me, it felt, it feels very relevant or my feelings about writing poems has shifted very much, but my experience of this book at this moment is, is um, both very satisfying and very aggravating in the right ways. One of the things I had to do was I had to relocate the confession. Mm -hmm. um, there's considerable, considerable overlap in crush between the author of the poems and the speaker of the poems. And there is no overlap at all in foxes between the author of the poems and the speaker of the poems. Um, especially when the speakers of the poems are animals. Mm -hmm. But something has to do the confessing. And I am tired of being the hammer. Mm -hmm. And... It's not that the hammer per se is the speaker, but kind of the hammer is the speaker. Um, when I wrote Crush, I was in love. 
And I wasn't in love when I wrote War of the Foxes. In fact, I had to consider, well, what if I will never love again? Do I have anything worth saying? And yeah, I did. It came up pretty quick in my head. Don't kill my friends. Not sure who I was talking to, but it ended up being everything. Don't kill my friends. And then during the writing of it, my biological father died and my stepfather died. And there was a lot in there about inheritance. Um, I had this thought in my head, am I the man that I meant to be? And that's such a tired, common question that everyone in middle age has. And I couldn't find a way of making it interesting until I realized who it was that needed to confess it. And it turns out who needed to confess it was the fish sticks. <laughs> the fish and the fish sticks think to themselves, this is not what we meant to be. Mm. And so it answers the question, am I? No, I am not. And then it makes the fish say it and not me. And mm. it makes the hammer say something. So in a way, I was able to animate the landscape um, and have the landscape talk to itself, mm -hmm. um, which gave me more voices. And I could have dialogues instead of monologues. Um, and it also got around the question of, is it true? Did it happen to you? And it ended up being a hypothetical, if this could happen to one, and I, as the reader, am one, then what do I do about it? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because there seem like unintended or surprising kind of consequences to, to the result of uh, animating the landscape. And uh, so even if the speaker in these poems is really, really not you. Because it's a dialogue and not a monologue, it becomes very much about relationships between people or things. And there is a different kind of love story. Whereas the, the, the love song of one person who is in love is different than in a way, the song of many things, uh, talking, failing to talk, failing to hear one another, or 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 seeing uh, themselves, or or not even being able to being seen in relation. I don't know. There's something that I'm I'm not I'm not able to articulate yet, but it's it feels revolutionary in a way, or or something like. And also classically traditional in all of the creation myths and yes. fables and fairy tales. It's, and it's even a, it's a dog and pony trick. It's, it's a cheap trick. It's like, I'm going to, it's ventriloquism, really. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pretend to be that stone and that twig and tell you about the world, which is really about myself, but now it's about the world. Um, but yeah, one of the reasons we've had it for so long as a form is because it does that. Yeah. Um, I think to keep it on track, yeah. <laughs> you have to have a point. There has to be um, an accumulation. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's too big. 
and I brought it down to um, who is my opponent and who isn't my opponent. Am I at war or not? Am I complicit or not? Am I a spy or not? Am I on the right team or not? Um, multiplicity was really fun to play with, and it's 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 funny that you say the word love song because I would think you know all of the poems in Crush are a love song, but in Where the Foxes, there's one poem that actually has love song in the title, and it's not. A singular speaker or it's it's an identity posing as a singular speaker but it's a love song of the square root of negative one we read that um, I also there's a lot of stars sure. on it I think <laughs> in in a, in a poem earlier there's a conversation with zero and the moon and a suitcase uh, and a ghost And then this character, the square root of negative one shows up and the square root of negative one doesn't exist. The square root of negative one is an imaginary number. It doesn't exist and yet it serves certain intractable problems. Like art doesn't exist but solves problems or Poetry isn't true, but solves problems. It seems suspicious and, and wonderful and um, ghost-like. Yeah, I'd love to read this poem. Love song of the square root of negative one. I am the wind and the wind is invisible. All the leaves tremble, but I am invisible. Bloom without flower, not without rope. Song without throat and wingless flight. Dark boat and the dark night, pure velocity. As the hammer is a hammer when it hits the nail, and the nail is a nail when it meets the wood, and the invisible table begins to appear out of mind, pure mind, out of nothing, pure thinking. Through darkness, through silence, a vector, a violence, I labor, I lumber, I fumble forward through the valley as winter, as water, I mist and frost, flexible and elastic to the task. I am the hand that lifts the rock. I am the mind that strings the worm and throws the line and feels the tug, the flex in the pole. And foot by foot, I find the groove, the trace in the thicket, the key in the lock as root breaks rock from seed to flower to fruit to rot a holy pilgrim moving through the stations of the yardstick. I track, I follow, I hinge and turn, frictionless and efficient as an equal sign. I flip and fold, I superimpose, I become location, and you veer toward me, the eye to which you are relative, magnetized for your revelation. Hook and bait, pole star and checkmate. 
I am your arrival. There is no refusal. We are here, you see, together. We are already here. I love that poem. Can we go um, back to a few things that you were talking about earlier? Um, one is the opponent, um, the idea of um, having an opponent and and how that's different um, for you than having an enemy. Um, you know, in an interview that I read um, with you, you talked about moving in with your biological father um, when he was ill and dying and um, called him you know, learning, uh, learning in part about, uh, what it is to have an opponent or to be an opponent in part from that, that experience. That's a tough one because in hindsight, I think he was more of an enemy mm. than I wanted him to be. Or I'm still angrier even angrier I don't know mm-hmm. I think trying to be the best person that I could I think my dad was set up I think he got pushed into a rigged game and had a limited skill set um I think he knew better, and I think he made really bad choices for everyone out of spite and narcissism. I think the hits that he took were calculated, and he was okay taking the hits as long as other people got wounded. Hmm. Uh, he seemed intent on bringing everyone down. But it was a rigged game, I guess. Family is a rigged game. And father and son have different strengths and different goals. And then throw in a tight location and economics and only so many hours in the day to put your attention to. We were set up in opposition in a game that wasn't our construction. Mm-hmm. He didn't pick me as a target. Um, the game did. So we were opponents in the setup of the game. Hmm. I don't know if he would have targeted me if I wasn't in the house and he wasn't responsible and if he wasn't already frustrated and, and guilty and distracted and stressed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think he was set up. Mm-hmm. But I also I think everyone is set up and I think he's one of the worst people I've ever met. I've read about bad people, but when it comes to people that I've met, I knew him for a very long time, 
and I knew him when I was powerless. And um, I still don't understand the the glee he got with his maliciousness and how contaminating it was to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, welcome to Tucson. This is my hometown, as you can tell. It's smallish. Mm-hmm. Greater Tucson's about a million people now, but when I was growing up, it was 300,000. Mm-hmm. My father was a well-known lawyer. Um, and so when I would meet people, you know, I'm 16, 18, 21, I have the unusual name, Sykin. It's not Smith, it's Sykin. Uh, they'd say, Richard Sykin, any relation to? And I would say, yeah, he's my father. And they would say, I'm so sorry. Mm. Because he had already just, in his job and his personhood, made himself so ugly mm. that people, upon meeting me, would give their condolences that I was related. So I know I'm not making this up. Yeah. I got a lot of benefits that others didn't. We were upper middle class and I was the most important thing until I turned 12. Just like the half-brother before had been the most important thing until he turned 12 and father decided that he messed it up and was going to throw it away and start over. Hmm. Hmm. So I got private school, got piano lessons, um, and then, you know, I also ended up, you know, homeless in high school. When did your father die? Um, I don't remember. I try not to remember. It's okay. been several years. Okay. Um, was the experience of then watching him be powerless um, and then dying, um, has that changed things for you? I, I remember a long time ago a poet saying to me that things changed for him a lot when his father died in terms of his ability to be the person to even figure out who he was or who he wanted to be. My, it's, it's been almost f- exactly five years since my mother died, and things have changed for me, but not like that. My father's last words to me were, you don't deserve to outlive me. (laughs) Wow. Which was disappointing because he had already used the line before. (laughs) So it was not new. Mm. I felt so sad because I knew he meant it and I knew he had nothing else. Mm -hmm. And I knew that um, what he perceived of me made him look bad Mm. um i feel like throughout my life i kept coming to points where i would come to terms with him and that would have been a great place to quit 
but then, you know, we would stop being estranged and we would re-engage and he'd pull more shit and I'd have to like update. Okay. Well now I forgive you from here to here. Mm. I'd keep amending the document with the new forgiveness. Um, I don't know if I've changed because I think I've had several places where I caught up to the person I wanted to be. Mm. I think I was who I wanted to be at 16. I think at 29 I was. For sure at 30 I was. For sure at 40 I was. Mm. Um, so I don't think the change was that significant with him having passed. I know the daily frustration of him saying, you're an abomination, and I'm saying, yeah, I know, but do you want soup with that? Mm -hmm. It just, it, it was bad TV. Mm -hmm. Or it was bad vaudeville. Mm -hmm. But you did, you, you chose to go and live with him. I did. Yeah. But I, I don't know what I learned. Mm -hmm. I learned something. It'll come to me later. Yeah, maybe book five. Uh, I hope it's an essay and doesn't actually end up in a book. Interesting. I I didn't necessarily mean the content. I meant possibly the form. Or you said um, poetry isn't true but solves problems. So possibly poetry could... Book five might be the I solution think, to yeah, I think whatever problems or solutions I had with my father are book two. Uh-huh. And, and I, I, I don't expect him to show up in any other book. You, you said earlier that people have misunderstood what you have meant by art therapy. And I was hoping you might talk about that a little. Other than the misunderstanding that art and therapy happen and art therapy happens in a certain place with certain kinds of people at certain kinds of times and means one thing. Um, what are, what, what are the ways in which, you know, we're consistently misunderstanding what you mean by art therapy? And, and you said you're writing some essays about that, or at least that's leading you to well, let's think of it in, in the largest sense possible. Mm -hmm. um, we know that eating healthy is better for us and feels better. Um, but rather than having it a lifestyle, we call it a, a fad. We know that moving our bodies around is important. But we call that going to the gym. You go to the gym or you don't. You eat healthy or you don't. Like you, I've got this smoothie. I've got this uh, forty-minute aerobic exercise. I have this dream journal. I have this like everything got partitioned out as if everything is judged on commerce and productivity and everything outside of a job experience is now a type of therapy that we should put back in. I need move my body therapy and put energy in my body therapy and have a dream therapy and relationship therapy and grieving therapy. 
I just think the idea that we took out all the things that made us human makes our baseline really, really ill. Mm. I mean, everyone should be able to have dreams and talk about them. Everyone should be able to eat a salad or a piece of cake. Everyone should be able to move their body or not and have it part of a more cohesive, coherent experience. Mm -hmm. Just the, the, the parceling of it out means that we could exist without it if we had to. Mm. And my question is, why? Being able to dissect things makes it easier to talk about them. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, I like being able to say the arts and talk about something that isn't a salad or, um, or weightlifting. Mm -hmm. But to take it out, to say sick people could benefit from it, but given the economic conditions, let's cut funding to the National Endowment of the Arts. The only way you can make the argument that we can cut the funding is to say that we could get by without it and only sick people need it. Mm -hmm. We made ourselves sick, then said we don't deserve to be healthy or can't afford to be healthy, and then we start making decisions that make that health impossible to get back. And that's my problem with the framing it. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I'm still stumbling here. I, I don't have, I don't have the seductive, persuasive language that I want. I know more about hammers and being evil than I do about how to make everyone healthy with mm -hmm. art and food and movement. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important, so I'll put my attention to it. Yeah. Well, part of what you're saying, I think, and it does seem both incredibly uh, common sense and genius, is that this kind of movement, which I think comes from inside and outside, towards greater and greater compartmentalization as a way of solving a problem or a way of conceiving of what the problem is, is the problem to some extent. And that integration uh, and seeing a person and life and the environment, I mean, over and over again, we get examples from science, from, from everywhere that we are connected and that things are connected. And when you try to to pull things apart and then isolate, uh, you know, either a solution um, or or the problem, pathologize one part of something or someone, um, and intervene and uh, without a, a sense of of how things are connected. 
we always go wrong. We get things get worse um, in that way. I mean, I so you know, of course, I was going to say, oh, you're a social worker. So talk about how the different parts of your life, you know, being a, a social worker and being a poet and being a publisher and being a, are, are connected. But actually, I guess in a way, that's not the right question to ask. Um, because it assumes that they're not connected. Or it assumes that, that you go through your life and, and you know, that stupid expression and then you wear different hats and you um so I guess I'll just ask about the social worker part of your life um as it is already connected to all the other parts of your life I am not a social worker oh I have never been a social worker for real I thought this was something that unfortunately there was how does this get out there was an interviewer (laughs) for the Tucson Weekly that interviewed uh, man Drew for Spork. Uh huh. Didn't record us, but provided quotes, and uh, said I was a social worker. Fake news, an actual example of fake news. I think it might have been just a misunderstanding, and I think she had a really casual attitude to reporting. Uh huh. But because it was in print. And it was in print early. It was in print before I had a book. Um, It keeps showing up on Wikipedia, even though I keep asking them to delete it because it isn't true. Never was true. I worked in a group home. Uh huh. Because I've seen this in at least two or three places. Oh, I know. I know. That is fascinating. I I worked in a group home. Wow. Which is very different. I worked in behavioral health. Uh huh. What was the population? Um. Dual diagnosed, um, which means an uh, an IQ below 72 um, and an emotional disorder. And how, when, how long ago was that? And I did it for a long time. I did oh. it um, cumulatively. I did it for 16 years. Wow. You don't have a regular um, teaching position anywhere. Correct. Correct. You don't have a tenure track uh, teaching job. Um, you um, are not, uh, you know, the publisher of Gray Wolf Press. Um, uh, and you're not doing the jobs that we associate with, you know, the kind of insider uh, poetry machine. Okay. It was pointed out to me early. I could either work more or have less. Mm-hmm. And I've decided to have less. I live on about 14000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I will do odd jobs if they come up. I'll go uh, work in a restaurant for a couple of weeks. Um, I'll go deliver flowers for Valentine's Day. Um, I'll pick up work here and there. Um, it's really easy to live in Tucson on 14,000. I do dream of a one bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, I do dream of five pair of pants or a third pair of shoes, but it, it, 
comes down to time or money, and I need the time more than I need the money. Mm-hmm. The outsider thing is a frustration. Um, I have been on the market since 94, and I've been actively um, applying for jobs and actively interviewing. Mm-hmm. I'm just not the best candidate for the market because I have a degree, I have a bachelor's in psychology, not a bachelor's in English. Um, I have an MFA, which was a terminal degree, but is no longer a terminal degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I am really skilled at teaching and editing poetry, but I'm not the best candidate when it comes to teaching literature classes. Um, don't have a PhD, don't have an English degree. Um, so the positions are poet and nonfiction writer. I don't have any published nonfiction. They're instructor, uh, instructor and lecturer. And I'm, I can't teach The Great Gatsby. I mean, I could, I could teach The Great Gatsby. I could come up with a syllabus. I have come up with syllabi. Um, but it's really hard in the Skype interview. I'm down to, you know, there's three of us, and I'm in the Skype interview, and they're figuring out which one to drop before the campus visit. And they say, well, you know, what 12 books would you teach this year? And what is the theme? And what would you have to say about them? They're like, actually, I just read 350 poetry books because I'm judging the National Book Awards this mm-hmm. year, and I didn't read fiction. But I could. I could read fiction. It's just, I made a commitment to read these 350 books um, because I can't keep up with the requirements of your job when you're not paying me. Like, (laughs) if you hire me, if you hire me, I will be spectacular at learning how to do it. But now you're asking me to make it up on the spot, something that you've been doing for 30 years. Mm Mm-hmm. I have a I have a diverse background which makes me able to problem solve in certain arenas but I also have gaps in my education when it comes to you know teaching literature and so I don't get the job I'm an outsider because I just happen to be a really bad candidate for the jobs I've been trying to get a teaching job since I was 29 I mean at a certain point you realize well, I may just be an editor. I may, you know. Yeah. I may have to just, okay, I'm the outsider by default. I'm still outside. Um, it wasn't part of the manifesto. Um, I'm not anti-academia. I just, academia, I guess, has decided that I don't know what it is, and they're sparing me mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. But, yeah, I just... I applied last year to jobs and got some interviews and some not. Mm-hmm. But you can't go around saying that because then people say, well, how committed is he to his press and what's wrong with him? And why is he even talking about it? Well, because... When asked, sure, but there it's are not... Great teach- there are great things about a teaching job. I mean, many great things. I, I mean, I have the same, I have an undergrad degree in psychology and a terminal 
degree. I love the word terminal in this context. Um, yeah, and and the job market is a fascinating thing that people don't talk about very often, especially if they're not successful, as you and I have both have both been. It's an interesting you know, to apply for these jobs, to get attached to the idea of it, to sell yourself, you know, to is to imagine yourself getting the job, to explain why you would be good at it, and then, you know. I've worked with mentally ill adults. And in the system, the idea is normalization. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about making them less crazy we talk about making them more normalized I'm not that well normalized myself comes down to it would be tucking in my shirt quitting smoking keeping business hours not having phone anxiety having a broad smile and a firm handshake I'd have to learn more jokes and make more small talk. I'd have to be less intimidating. Um, I'd have to not stare off into space. I'd have to not wander into the corner at parties. I'd have to not talk about the frozen ice of my soul in line at the bank. You know, they're... they're but are those, are the, if you think back to the teachers that you had in your MFA program, I don't know where you went. Um, you're not describing... Describing the teachers now. Okay. Oh, I would be a great candidate in the 90s. Okay. I'm exactly <laughs> what they were looking for in the 90s. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm um, perceptive and offbeat and tangential. Um amiable but given to spells um and lonesomeness Mm -hmm. but you know nowadays you're getting you know office hours are full you're getting 500 emails a day that need to be responded to in an appropriate way don't type quickly and my spelling's not great and so that's already bogged me down Mm -hmm. um and too bad you don't actually have a social work degree for your office hours. I know, I know. <laughs> it is so fascinating. I mean, you know, I think that part of the reason why I'm a really good teacher is because I trained as a doula and a childbirth educator. But you can't really talk about that in a job interview. You can't say, like, the reason I'm good at teaching poetry is because you can't take someone else's pain away when they're having a baby. You have to learn what it means to support someone and be there for someone and the power of that without fixing it. And that has helped me become a better teacher because I'm no longer trying in the same way to fix someone else's problem because I don't believe in that. I want to talk about waste. (laughs) Um, You had said that you've published about 120 pages and more would waste someone's time, which was interesting. But I did see somewhere that you said that you write a lot, a lot of pages, and then um, very few end up in the book. That is that correct? That's correct. I also saw um, you say somewhere that um, you, you, you read maybe about 200 books a year, um, either 
through um, submissions to the press or just um, reading the new books that come into the Poetry Center. Um, so I publish a, a much, much higher percentage of what I write um, than what you're describing. And I read many fewer books than what you are describing. I don't feel there's any moral component to this choice of the numbers of how much we uh, publish based on what we write or how much we read. O only a kind of um, practical and um, maybe characterological or, or um, temperamental uh, quality to it. But I, I, I guess one of the things I really love about your work is that it doesn't feel precious. It doesn't feel, it certainly feels condensed. Um, it feels careful. It feels chosen. It feels intentional. But it, it also feels like it has the space. It has openness. It has vulnerability. It has um, uh, an awareness of itself um, as able to develop or change its mind or have space for contradiction very, very, very much. I mean, so much, um, particularly War of the Foxes, has, has space for that. Um, and Crush has a different kind of space, a space of like awareness of one's own subjectivity and, and who, uh, and, and it will sort of, it will step, you know, in that book, you really will have moments where you step back and see yourself seeing what you're seeing. So I, in a weird way, have always associated that kind of spaciousness um, with a less condensed, less highly curated or edited approach. And that's not the case with your with your process. So I guess my question is, um, do you think about that in the editing and the selection and the ordering? Um, and by that, I mean, uh, narrowing down, but not closing down, or leaving space open? How do you how do you do that? How do you take 200 pages and go to, let's say, 60 without creating a kind of like highly jeweled, um, perfect uh, sense within a book? I just have a couple of rules so that it seems to shake it out. One is, can anybody else say this? Mm. And if they can, then let them. Hmm. There are really very few things that only I know. And I am obligated to those foremost. If I have time for advocacy, I will pitch in like everyone else and say, let's be kinder. Let's try and get along. You know, let's eat well and move our bodies and, you know, whatever whatever helpful things that can be said. Um, but I find I'll write, you know, 60, 70, 80 pages of a thing and realize somebody else has a, a better angle of approach. It's more powerful, more cogent, more invested. If someone else can say it better, that's a good thing to know. 
maybe I still have to write those 60 pages, but it doesn't mean I need to share them. Mm. Like writing and publishing are different. Making and sharing are different. Um, John Cage um, composed music that couldn't be performed because either the notes were impossible or the tempo was inhuman. And asked about that, he said that composing and performing are really different things. And mm -hmm. he composed things that were not intent on being performed. I like the, the physical act of writing. I like the things that happen with writing in general. I like discovering things and making words move and do. But I can't imagine I've got 25 books in me of what only I could say. Mm. But, you know, I have a different goal and a different project. Um, in a way, you know, I have made the joke that I'm angry at John Ashbery because I don't have, you know, five years of my life to dedicate to his one mind. Mm. Hmm. But actually I do. Actually, it would be five years that would not be wasted. And, you know, certainly I've made my th way through most of his books. I don't know if I've gotten all of them. Um, I'm not that kind of writer. And my setup for five books pushes me to at least have five books. Um, the first two are slim, I imagine. They're going to stay slim. I'd like to, to thicken them up, but sometimes you just end up with the director's cut and the outtakes and the, the, the goof reel, and it just becomes tiresome. Hmm. A lot of poems fell out of both of my collections because they were the same poem again. Hmm. And I, I picked the one that did it best and dropped the other one. I had a lot of repetition in me. Um, the different restrictions, of, I think, of the five books will mandate that I move into new areas. Uh, I knew about film, so having, you know, the the movie metaphors and crush was easy, but I really had to learn how to paint to do War of the Foxes, and now I'm learning my classical music terms and going back to uh, my dactyls and my trochees to make sure that the music part of this third book makes sense. Hmm. And I don't know if it even works for me, but it's works the best so far and the, the method that I'm using. Um, but yeah, I can't see can't see having more than five books of poems. Hmm. I can see being a novelist, but that, that would be different. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't successfully finished a story yet, so I don't know when that would kick in. Mm -hmm. so, so I hear two rules or guidelines. One is, can I say this? Am, am, am I, I the, the only, only one? one who can say this? And the other is, 
Am I repeating myself? Yes. Uh, And if so, pick the best version of this repetition. Are there other... And and then I guess also, does this um, satisfy the restrictions uh, within the particular project or book that it's, you know... Right. Part of. Right. Um, Um, For the essays, there's a restriction. It's, uh, is he dead yet? And I have a feeling that the book of essays might be called Now That Everyone Is Dead. Uh-huh. Who, who is the he? Right, exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. You're making me rethink so many things, which is exactly why I do this. If I had said the real gear of death for my boyfriend and his occupation, everyone would have known who it was. Mm. And he had not come out. Mm-hmm. And I was not going to out him to his family posthumously. Mm-hmm. So I had to change his occupation in the year of his death. You know, now that my father's passed... I feel less uncomfortable sharing that he confessed to killing his first wife. Hmm. But that was a thing. I almost, I was so shocked by that, that I almost just said to you, is she dead too now? (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So dad was a lawyer. Everything was confidential. Mom was a therapist. Everything was confidential. Um, dad was the hand of justice. You were wrong and got punished. And mom was the hand of mercy. You were wrong and got forgiven. Hmm. But you were wrong no matter what. Hmm. You were wrong and we couldn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And yet coming out of that background, it's still important to you to respect some levels of confidentiality or privacy or uh, yeah. propriety, yeah. yeah. as many as I can. Yeah. Huh. I did not press charges, legal charges, against the people who harmed me physically. So I can't use their names. Mm-hmm. Um, Legally, morally, ethically, or all three? It's even logically. Yeah. My contribution is not going to be the biographical facts. Yeah. Because they're boring and common and everywhere. Mine's going to be my take on it. And, And I think it's interesting. I hope it's interesting. Um, but... If I say the names, then it happened to someone else, so who cares? And if I don't say the names, it's possible in the human condition, and therefore everyone should know it. I'm trying to think of a funny rule just to, you know, change the mood. No, I. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> you want to end with a poem? Maybe, if yeah. I could find one. All right. Yes. Great. At seven lines, I think this is the shortest poem 
in where the fox is. It was about 12 or 13, po- 13 pages long. Wow. And I realized that I had missed the point super early. Um, so this is a good example for me about what's the part that I needed to share and what's the part that I didn't need to share. It's called Mystery of the Pears. And the 12 pages that got cut were basically decoration and explanation. Mm. But, but this was, this was the only part, like I would get, I would get to the last line here when it was just the beginning of the first page. And just be so charmed (laughs) and then look at the rest of the poem and feel just exhausted at the idea of reading more. Mm. And it was good writing. Um, I mean, it was passable writing. It had images and sounds, um, but it wasn't this poem. Mm. And maybe the important parts of it showed up elsewhere or will continue to show up elsewhere. But this is all that this poem needed to be. The mystery of the pears. I looked at the pears. I painted the pears, what they were like. I waited for the pears to reveal their mystery. Five brown pears in a chipped white bowl, soft and scarred and blushing yellow in the throbbing dark. They shine in their suits. I hung them on the wall, precise, a landmark. You might like it here. I think that you might like it here. Thank you. Thank you. This has been episode 52 of Commonplace with Richard Sykin, and I'm Rachel Zucker. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and James Ciano. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music performed and written by Moses Zucker Gorin. Many thanks to Yale University Press, Copper Canyon Press, and Spork Press for the books they donated to this episode and to all the presses that donate books to Commonplace. Thank you to our patrons and to you, listener. Take care and thank you for listening.